Good morning. Oh, it is a pleasure to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Derek Kamink. Um, I have a little bit of history with this church. This is where I preached my very first sermon probably 17, maybe 18 years ago. Uh, don't bother looking it up. It probably wasn't that great. Um, <laughs> So my connection with the church is uh, I married in. Um, so Warren and Shelley Erickson are my in-laws. So for those of you who know them, I thank you for your prayers. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't, count your blessings. Um, I'm just joking. They're fantastic. They're wonderful people. Um, this morning, we're going to look at the book of Jonah. So you're going to need your Bibles this morning, so pull it out, turn it on, however you have it. Um, there is no better sound to a pastor's ears than when those pages are flipping. And Jonah might be a little bit hard to find, um, but it is sort of right there in the meat of the, the prophets. Um, uh, so we're going to look at this entire book today. I'm not going to take more time than I'm allotted. Don't worry about that. Um, so we're going to get into this, into this book, into this book of Jonah, which we're probably all familiar with uh, at some point in our lives. We've heard this story. Uh, we know about the guy, and he flees from God and ends up in a fish and all of that stuff. Um, and so what often happens with a story like Jonah is we stop and we find a, uh, a lesson in morality. We find something that we can take home with us, uh, but we don't finish the rest of the story. So this morning, we're going to work our way through this entire book, and we're going to see some of those, uh, those lessons that maybe we have learned growing up about or that from the book of Jonah and see why they're good. But when we finish through the entire book, we're going to see a complete picture uh, that God wants to show us in this story. Uh, so we start in chapter 1 of Jonah, and it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittal, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. We don't get too far into the book of Jonah before we see something strange. Something that we don't see very often, and that is a prophet of God being called to go to a place outside of the nation of Israel. So Israel are, are God's chosen people, and every prophet receives a word from the Lord to go to the Israelite people, to tell them that they're, they're messing up, or they're sinning, uh, or they're, they're in trouble. Uh, but Jonah receives a word from the Lord to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city of the nation of Assyria, which is north of Israel. And the reason this is so strange is because the Assyrians are not good people. They are certainly not God's people. Uh, they are, at, at this time, some of the most violent, uh, despicable people on the planet. It is better for you to die in battle against the Assyrians than it is for you to be captured. The stories of uh, their torture uh, is stomach-churning. These are a people who sacrifice children to their gods. 
So make no bones about it, this isn't an innocent people. These are uh, a people uh, who's, who are as far away from God-fearing and God-pleasing as one can possibly be. And so Jonah, when he receives this word from the Lord, when we look at the next verse, it says, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. If you're looking at a map of Israel, you're going to see, I'm going to turn around so we're all looking at it the same way. There's the Mediterranean and here is Israel. Nineveh is up over here. Tarshish is way over there on the other end of the map. So Jonah goes not only in the opposite way, but as far away as he can possibly go from Nineveh. He's making a statement. He's refusing God. I'm not going to go. He goes and he gets on this ship and he runs. It says from the presence of God is what he's trying to escape. But what happens is that the Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea. It says in chapter 4, there was a great storm and the ship was about to break up and the, the sailors become afraid and every man cries to his own God. They are throwing things overboard to try and make the ship easier to control. And Jonah, during this storm, is fast asleep in the hold of the ship. So this isn't just a run-of-the-mill rainstorm. These are seasoned sailors, and they are gripped with fear. Their jobs are jobs where they, they bring goods from one port to the next port, and so they are throwing these goods overboard. They are, they are, uh, they are so scared that they are willing to give up their livelihood for the chance that they may be able to live. So these seasoned sailors are gripped with fear and yet Jonah lies sleeping in the hold of the ship. The captain goes to him. He says, why are you sleeping? Get up. Call on your God like the rest of us are so that we will not perish. And so they cast lots. And, and, and this is sort of a ritual that, that people do in order to, to find things out. And so they cast lots. Sometimes it's, uh, it's like drawing straws. Sometimes it's dice. But it's a way that, that people discern the will of the gods and sometimes even in Scripture of God. And so the lot falls on Jonah, which means he is the one that is singled out. They cry, who? Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? He says, I'm Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men become scared. They say, how could you do this? Jonah tells them that he's been fleeing from the presence of God and they question, why would you do that? And then they say, what are we supposed to do? What are we going to do in order to calm the sea? Because they've tried their own gods and, and nothing has happened. And so they say, let's try Jonah's God. Jonah, what do we have to do to please your God in order to calm the seas? He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. The sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. But they didn't want to do this. 
They didn't want to throw this man overboard. They didn't want to be guilty of murdering this man. And so they continue desperately trying to row to shore. But they come to understand that the storm is just simply too strong and they cry out to God and they say, have mercy on us. We are innocent of this man's blood. And they throw him into the sea and the sea calms. Then the men feared God greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. So we can stop the story here. And we can make a really nice sort of moral story. We can, we can glean a lesson out of this that, that when God calls you to do something, then, then you should do it. If you flee from God, you end up dealing with the storms of life, and in the case of Jonah, you're thrown into the sea. And so we can, we can glean this lesson. Be obedient to God. Do what God says. Be, uh, be a good person. You see, even in, in this moment, we, we see even people coming, foreign people, non-Israelite people coming to faith in God. You see, this isn't a, a foxhole conversion where they don't pray, God, if you save us, we will serve you. It is when they see and experience the power of God that they pray to him, they make vows to him, and they offer sacrifice to him. So even in this story of, of Jonah disobeying and then reaping the consequences, we still see salvation. And we can stop this story and we can have a nice little packaged lesson. Obey God. Do what God says. Don't flee from God. That's the lesson we like to tell our children. Those are the things that we want them to know, to believe. <coughs> Excuse me. But God doesn't stop. The story continues. In verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. So Jonah is thrown into the sea and the storm stops and the seas are calm. And God, in his mercy, sends this great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah spends three days inside this fish. And in those three days, he comes to understand the error of his ways. He understands that he cannot flee from God, that he cannot hide from God. Chapter 2 starts by saying, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, the God, from the stomach of the fish. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the current engulfed me. And he goes on and on, and he talks about how deep the Lord has sent him, how low he has become. And then in verse 7, he says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. 
but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, that which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. He comes to his senses. He comes to, to recognize his current plight is because of his disobedience. And so he makes a vow to God to once again be his obedient servant. And verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish and he vomited Jonah up onto dry land. And usually this is where the Sunday school version of this story stops. We, we have these beautiful lessons. Don't run from God. Obey him. And if you don't, there are consequences. And, and you can always come back to God and, and he will forgive you. And Jonah is spit back up onto dry land. And he receives life once again. This is a great place to stop that story. We can glean those little lessons. But God doesn't stop here. And only does God not stop here, <clears throat> but we see in, in this story of Jonah, we see a pointing to Jesus Christ. We see someone who has made a sacrifice. Thank you, sir. So we see him on the ship and he sacrifices himself in order to save those who are on the ship. We then see him being thrown into the water to his, well, to what they would have thought was his death. And after three days, we see this resurrection. We see the story of Jonah pointing us to the story of Jesus Christ a sacrificial death that through his death, salvation comes. We see three days in the tomb and then a resurrection that brings us our salvation. Fantastic place to end this story. It gives us, it puts everything so neatly for us. But you see, the Bible is not just a collection of stories that tell us what to do. In fact, the Bible rarely, if ever, is about us. The Bible's chief concern is to communicate to us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and for us to understand the heart of our Almighty God. And if we stop here, if we stop here, we miss part of what Scripture's main purpose to communicate is. We always insert ourselves into these stories. See, well, if I was Jonah, then, then maybe I would have listened to God and things would have gone better. Or I can see myself in Jonah trying to, to run away from God. But there is more to this story. God doesn't stop with Jonah on the beach. He continues. <clears> the <throat> story continues in chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now this may be a verse that <clears throat> we know is there, but it is dripping with the truth of God's grace. And here is a man who has done everything he can to run away from God, and yet God continues to pursue him. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So this time, Jonah gets up and goes to Nineveh. Now this is a big city, Nineveh. It says it's three days, takes three days to walk from one end to the other. Jonah arrives in Nineveh. And on one day's walk, he walks for one day, and as he walks, he proclaims, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is his proclamation. Basically, the end is near. In 40 days, the city will be destroyed. And it's incredible what happens. One day he spends in this city. And it says in verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robes from him, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. One day. In one day. Jonah brings a message to the Ninevite people, not a message of hope, not a message of repentance, but a message of calamity and of destruction. Imagine your first day on the mission field. You land and you start saying to people, it's not going to go well for you. This, this city is going to be destroyed. And in one day, every single person you talk to repents. And they began, begin to spread this message. And repentance is happening throughout this entire city. To the point that even the mayor hears, recognizes the sinfulness declares that we are a sinful people and we are in, in need of forgiveness. We will all, all of us, we will fast and we will put on sackcloth. As a missionary, uh, it doesn't get any better. Jonah has a 100% conversion rate. Everybody in that city turns to God. And their only hope, in verse 9, the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. They don't even know if what they're doing is going to work. They don't even know if this is what Jonah's God wants. All they know is that the only hope they have is to try something. 
that the message that they are hearing from Jonah, the only thing he's telling them is in 40 days, this city will be overthrown. That's all they know. And so, they do what they can. They fast. They put on sackcloth. And what happens in verse 10? God saw their deeds. They turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. What an incredible story of this prophet who, who didn't even want to go to Nineveh, who didn't even want to see these people saved, to run from God, to experience what he experienced with the storm and the fish, and then to finally go and to see this city turn its heart towards God, to relent from its evil ways, to see every single one of them receive saving grace from his almighty God. Here's another great place to end this story. We have a great, another morality lesson. Turn and repent and God will relent. We can see, you see Jonah, you see what would have happened if you just went even the first time, all of these people would be saved. This is, this is the greatest possible thing to happen to any prophet, to any missionary. Even Jesus didn't have a 100% conversion rate. And yet here is Jonah simply with this message of you will be destroyed. People come to God. But the story doesn't end there. God doesn't stop in what might be the most confusing verse in all of Scripture and one of my favorites because it really does delve into the character of Jonah. Chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Wait a minute. God has given Jonah the task of bringing a message of destruction to the city of Nineveh in the hopes that they will repent. Jonah eventually does bring the message of destruction to Nineveh, and they do, in fact, repent. Not some of them, but every single one of them. He's done it. No one else can say that they have accomplished perfectly the call of God on their lives, and yet Jonah can. And his reaction is anger, and he is displeased. There's something else going on here. The story continues for a reason. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Those are not words that should be said in anger. And yet, Jonah is furious. He says, I knew you would do this. I knew you were going to do this. I knew that if I brought the message of destruction to Nineveh, 
And if they repented, then you would be gracious and, 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 then, and you would spare them. So if we go back a little bit, if, if we remember the words of Jonah as he travels through Nineveh, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The glee that he was feeling as he pronounced this judgment upon these people that he hated. It was with pure joy that he was bringing this message of destruction to the Ninevite people, to this Assyrian power. He knew who they were. He knew what they did. And when God relents, he is angry. Isn't this what I said was going to happen? This is why I fled to Tarshish. So that your grace would not be bestowed upon these people. What we have here is a disconnect between an almighty, loving, gracious God and one of his servants. Here is where we begin to unravel the real and true lesson of the book of Jonah. His hatred for those who were not of his own. He had a hatred for those who were not Israelites, who were not Jewish, who were not God's chosen people. And the irony is that the people on the boat that threw him overboard were foreigners, were not Israelite people. They received salvation through Jonah. And now this entire city says later about 200,000 are spared because of Jonah. And it fills him with rage. And he has the audacity and the gall to say to God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew that you were gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. The one who, res who, who relents concerning calamity. So it's not even that Jonah is confused about who this God is. It seems that the, the hallmarks of the almighty, gracious God are the things that Jonah cannot stand about him. It's fine when all of that lands upon him and all of his people. It becomes a problem when it lands on people that Jonah does not like. He says, therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I don't know if there is a character in all of Scripture more despicable than this. He asks God to take his life from him. The worst possible thing he could imagine is that this city of Assyrian people has not been wiped from the face of the earth. So much that he would rather die than live in a world where God's grace extends to people other than himself and the people that he thinks deserve it. 
And the Lord says, do you have good reason to be angry? And, and Jonah, like the mature one he is, in a huff, leaves the city. He goes out from the city, he sits east of it, he makes a shelter for himself, he sits under the shade so that he can wait and see what might happen to the city. His hope is that God will re-relent and destroy this city and he wants a front row seat to the destruction of Nineveh. This is his desire. As he sits there and waits, God appoints a plant that grows up over him, brings shade over his head, delivers him from the discomfort of the sun, and Jonah is extremely happy about this plant. He's so happy because it's hot, so he gets a little shade. And it makes his day, and he's comfortable as he awaits the destruction of Nineveh. He went from being really sort of angry at God because of his abundant grace and loving kindness to now happy because he's not as hot as he used to be because he's a little bit more comfortable. And then God appoints a worm and when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant and it withered. And then the sun comes up. And again, God appoints a scorching east wind and the sun to beat down on Jonah's head so that he becomes faint, begging with all his soul again to die. Death is better for me than life. Furious, completely lost it because now he's hot. And God says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yeah, I do. I have good reason to be angry even until death. God says, you had compassion on a plant which you did not work and which, did, which you did not cause to grow which came up overnight and perished overnight. God says, I want you to understand what you're saying. That you have a right to be angry that this plant that miraculously grew overnight, that you didn't have anything, you didn't till the soil, you didn't plant it, you didn't fertilize, you didn't water. It just sprung up. And you had it for a single day. And you have the right to be angry over this plant. And Jonah says, you're darn right I do. It's hot out here. God says, should I not then have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than, sorry, 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals. God here compares Jonah's anger, his desire to have his plant back, to, he says, should I not then be concerned? Should I not have compassion? If you have compassion on this plant that was here for a day, should I not have compassion on this city of 120,000 souls that I love, that I grew that I created, that, that I nurtured in my own image, do I not then have compassion on them? 
and the story ends. This is not where we would end this story. There is no tidy bow. There is no, and they lived happily ever after. There is no Aesop's fable lesson at the end of this story. It is simply God saying, I deserve, if you think you can be angry and have compassion on this plant, then I get to have compassion on the 120 souls. End of story. Roll credits. No scene at the end of them. No setting up the sequel. Nothing. And we scratch our heads and we say, why would anyone end this story here. God ends the story here because we have everything we need to understand the heart of God and everything we need to understand our own hearts. You see, it's so easy for us to point to Jonah and say, kind of a jerk, not the nicest guy, and I'm censoring myself. Not a good person. We stand in judgment of Jonah because we contrast him with God. Be careful because we fall into the very same trap that Jonah fell into. We are on the in, he is on the out. I'm glad that he's uncomfortable. I'm glad that the sun is beating down on him. That's what he deserves. You see, the entire point of the story of Jonah is to compare the heart of Jonah and the heart of God and to see that even one of God's servants is so misaligned with God's desire and yet God still accomplishes what God sets out to accomplish. The whole point of Jonah when we compare the heart of God and the heart of Jonah is to see how misaligned they are. And for us not to say, stinking rotten Jonah. But for us then, not to compare our hearts with Jonah's, but for us to compare our heart with the heart of God. And to see how misaligned our heart is with the heart of God. Because I'm sure that there are people that we know who we don't think deserve God's grace. There may be individuals in our life who have hurt us so deeply that we don't want them to receive the salvation of God. There may be groups of people who we, who we disagree with so passionately that we do not want them to understand the loving grace of God. Do we not delight when our enemies suffer? when we should be pursuing salvation for them and with them. I know uh, this is something I too am guilty of. We draw lines and everyone on our side is fine and everyone on the other side doesn't get it. And they never will. And they don't deserve the love of God that I receive, as Jonah so eloquently puts it as he is seething, the gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, the one who relents concerning calamity. That's the God that we love and we're glad he's on our side, but those people are on the other side. So they don't deserve God's love. They are the Ninevites in our eyes. And we never believe them 
when they convert. It's not possible for them. They're too wrong. They're too evil. They're too despicable. We draw lines. Some are on our side and some are not. This is, this is how our society has, uh, functions. This is, this is the way that we understand each other. As we put each other into different camps, into different tribes, into different people groups based on a number of different things so we can decide whether or not we align with them, whether they're good or bad. And God shows us that the worst of the worst are still recipients of God's loving kindness and grace. And that doesn't sit well with us. We say, how is that even possible? That shouldn't be. It's not fair. It's unjust. Those people don't deserve salvation. But the truth is, salvation is not ours to dole out. Salvation belongs to God and to God alone. It is He who decides on whom His grace and loving kindness lands. We do not decide who receives the grace of God. For if we did, there would be no one outside of ourselves who receives it. So quickly can we judge poor human Jonah. The point of the story, the reason the story stops there is because we have seen this contrast between the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. And it is now our response, now we get to put ourselves into this story, not as Jonah, certainly not as God, not even as the Ninevites, not as Jonah, someone running away from God, not as Jonah, someone coming back to God, but we get to take the place of Jonah as we compare the hearts and see how different the desires of Jonah and the desires of God are, and we can see in our own lives the difference, how different our desires are and how different God's desires are. And what that should do for us is that we should react the same way that the Ninevites did, that we should mourn our sin, and that we should come to God and ask for forgiveness, and in everything that we can possibly do, align our hearts to the hearts of God, align our will to the will of God. Align our desires to the desires of God. And the question is, how do you know? How do you know God's desires? Jonah knew. Jonah knew God's desires in God's heart because he knew God. The way that we come to understand God's heart and God's desires is by knowing him, by studying his word, by hanging on every one. It is so easy for us to say, well, I don't think that's something God would say or that's not what God thinks or that's not what this is or that's not what that is. But if that is based in our own opinion, in our own understanding, then, then we falter. We always must go back to the word of God. 
And when we begin to understand God, the more and more our desires and our hearts will align with him. And because we are a sinful people, it will never be perfect, but we must always strive to align our desires and our hearts with the desires and the heart of God. And we see clearly what God's heart and God's desire is, is that saving grace is made available for all, even the worst of sinners. Because there isn't a line at which you cross when you deserve the grace of God. No one here who has received salvation deserved the grace of God. All of us are as bad as the Assyrians, and yet God still chooses to bestow his grace upon us. Praise the Lord. You see, because if salvation belonged to us or to an individual, then we would have arbitrary rules and reasons as to why someone is or someone isn't. But salvation belongs to God. And so even though it might not sit well with us, even though we might not think that they deserve it, salvation belongs to the Lord and it is for him to decide who is saved. So when we look at the story of Jonah, as it fits in the entire text of Scripture, it points us to a God who is loving, a God whose, whose kindness is unending and who is compassionate and relents concerning calamity. This is the greatest news for all of us. As sinners in need of a Savior, God gave us that Savior so that he can relent, so that we do not experience his wrath, but we experience his love. So when we look again at the book of Jonah or the story of Jonah, let's not stop. Let's not stop at those, at those nice little lessons that teach our children to be good. Let's continue and teach our children and ourselves that the life of a disciple is one who aligns his will and desires with that of God even when we disagree or we don't like it. Let us not be like Jonah and, and seethe in anger when those who we hate receive salvation, but rejoice, for they have experienced the same grace that we have received as well. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for, for this story, for, for the truth that we see in your servant Jonah. We can track our own lives with him as we resist you, as we, as we come to you, as we try and navigate the storms of life. And I pray that we don't stop with those simple lessons of be good or obey God or if you come back, then, then God will accept you. And while all those things may be true, I pray that we will remember how ridiculous Jonah sounds as he speaks about your love and about your grace in anger. Father, I pray that when we see and experience others receiving your grace and salvation through it, that we will respond with joy, that we will see a life changed. 
Almighty God, we thank you for the truth that we find in your word. We pl- I pray that, that we will take these lessons, and especially the one where, where we can compare our hearts to yours and see where we fall short. See the areas in which we need to align ourselves and our wills and our desires with yours, and we will take the steps to do so. We pray this all in your son's holy name. Amen.